My oldest daughter turned 18 last month, and she graduates from high school next month. And for me, that is both exciting, but also hard to believe. It seems like it was only six months ago that I was rocking her in my arms as a little baby, desperately trying to get her to fall asleep so that I could put her to sleep so that I could go to sleep. And it felt like those days would never end. And yet, here I am. They're almost done. I mean, now she comes to my house, uh, to our house. She comes in. She eats our food. She sleeps in the bed that I pay for. And then she's gone again. And, uh, and it makes me kind of sad. A part of me misses when her, when my other kids were little. I mean, it used to be that when I came through the door at the end of the workday, they'd just come and they'd mob me and they'd be all over me and I could barely get my shoes off. And now I'm lucky if the dog shows up. I mean, it's a good day if my kids sort of roll over from the couch and say, yo, dad, you know? So I'm kind of sad about that. On the other hand, I'm so proud that they're growing up. Because the alternative, if they weren't, would be kind of scary and deeply worrisome, wouldn't it? I mean, what if my kids weren't growing up? What if instead of maturing and growing, they simply stopped growing or actually began to, to revert? I mean, what if they were two years old and, and couldn't walk or couldn't talk? What if they turned eight years old and they couldn't read or, or they couldn't dress themselves? And, I mean, what if they were 10 years old and I still had to carry them everywhere and wipe the milk off of their mouth? Now, of course, if that was the case, I would gladly do that for them as service to them and service to God. But I'm so grateful that they continue to grow, that they continue to mature because, of course, that's what they're designed to do. In fact, it's what we're all designed to do. You know, today we're going to begin a series in the book of Philippians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in the city of Philippi. And at the very heart of that letter, the, the very beating heart, his desire that the Apostle Paul has for the people in that church, and really for us in our church today, is that they would grow, that they would mature, that they would become more and more and more like Jesus. And so today, as we begin this series, I want to give you some context. I want to give you some background to the book. But really, I want to make the case for why it's so important, why it's so valuable for us to spend a good bit of time looking very carefully at it and how it is that the Apostle Paul expects that, in fact, we are actually going to grow and become more like Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, beginning in chapter 1. This is how he begins his letter to this church. He says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, along with Timothy, writes his beautiful letter to this, to this church that they have such a warm and an affectionate relationship with. And in fact, we know a great deal about how this church began because it was all recorded in the book of Acts by one of the guys who was there, a guy named Luke. In fact, the, the church of Philippi, Philippi began when Paul and Timothy and another guy, Silas, and another guy, a doctor named Luke, showed up in the town. And, and what happened was that they'd actually been on a missionary journey through what is today modern-day Turkey. They've been going to the churches that were already there and strengthening them and along the way sharing the good news of the gospel. And at one point they wanted to turn deeper into, again, what is modern day Turkey, to go further. But the, but the Holy Spirit stopped them. In Acts it records that they wanted to go there, the Holy Spirit stopped them. And instead they went back to a place called Troas. And there 
There, the Apostle Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia. Macedonia is northern Greece. A man in Macedonia calling them to come and to bring the gospel there. And so that's what they did. They got on a boat and they sailed there. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, Luke records what happened when they made their way to Macedonia. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothras, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, the way that they normally would start a church in a new town or a new place that they went was to go to the local synagogue where people already were studying the, the scriptures. And that day it was just the Old Testament. And they would begin to have a conversation with them there. But when they came to the city of Philippi, there weren't enough Jewish people there to actually have a synagogue. So they caught wind of this, so this prayer place outside the city by the river. And so on the Sabbath day, they go down there. And they, they meet with a group of ladies that happen to be there. And one of the ladies they meet is a lady named Lydia. Now, Luke tells us a number of things about Lydia. First of all, she was from Thyatira, which means that she was likely Asian in her ethnic background. Secondly, we find out that she's got a home in Philippi. So that means that she's probably fairly wealthy. If she's got a home in Thyatira, a home in Philippi, this is a fairly well-to-do lady. And thirdly, we learn that she is, a, uh, she is in the fashion business. She's sort of like the CEO of this fashion business because she is involved in selling uh, purple goods. So this was a woman who was smart and successful and very, uh, very capable. And she's what the Bible calls a God-fearer. Here, uh, Luke says that she worshipped God. That means that she wasn't uh, worshipping the pantheon of gods in, the, in that day. She, wasn't, she didn't believe in all the Greek gods and the Roman gods. Rather, she believed in the real God, the God of Israel. And she was studying the Bible, and, and she'd be someone we would consider today to be a seeker. I mean, she knew that, that there was God. She knew what the Bible taught about the laws of God and what it meant to be righteous before God. She would have known that she, like everyone, broke those laws. But she didn't know quite, she wouldn't have known quite how to atone for those sins, how, how those sins ought to be paid for. And now Paul comes and he begins to explain who Jesus was and what he did and the, the, the sacrifice that he made on the cross and, and the power of his resurrection. And he engages her in, in this intellectual conversation. He answers her questions based on the scriptures and in this conversation that she, he has with her. And it makes sense to her. And in the end, she gives her life to follow Jesus. She's baptized in her whole household. And she says to, to Paul and his companions, look, if you think that I'm really a follower of Jesus, come and stay at my home. So that's what they do. And this is how the church in Philippi begins. It begins through the conversion of a high society businesswoman through intellectual engagement with the message of the gospel. But that wasn't where it ended. In fact, Luke tells us what happens next. In verse 16, he says this. 
as we were going to the place of prayer, we, met a, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants. That word literally is slaves. These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So now the second person in this story is this little Greek slave girl. She's like the extreme opposite of Lydia. Where Lydia was Asian, this, was a, was a, this little girl was Greek. And where Lydia was in control of her destiny and wealthy and highly successful, this girl was a slave, poor and exploited by everyone around her. And yet she follows Paul and Silas around. And everywhere she yells out, she says, these men are slaves, but they're slaves of the Most High God. And they've come to tell you the way of salvation. Of course, this goes for a number of days until Paul's had it. And he turns and he demands, he commands that the Spirit leave her by the power of Jesus. And that's exactly what happens. Now, it's fascinating to note how this little girl comes to be affected by the power of God in her life. It isn't that, it isn't that the Apostle Paul invites her to a Bible study. He doesn't reason with her. He doesn't debate with her. Rather, he displays to her the power of God in her life. He, he miraculously sees by the power of Jesus, that the Spirit would leave her life. And as a result of that, was that she was freed from that, that Spirit at work in her life. And it was obvious not only to her, but also to her owners. In fact, they're so upset that they now drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace where they're going to have them punished. And this is where the third person in our story comes in, who also comes to know Jesus. Here's what happens, beginning in verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Interesting. You know, when we think of stocks, uh, we think of the, uh, the 1700s uh, in New England when they used to put uh, people in a contraption where their hands and their head were sort of stuck there. and It was a form of humiliation and embarrassment. But that's not what Roman stocks were. Roman stocks were designed to cramp up a, a prisoner's muscles in such a way that their, their muscles seized up and it caused searing pain to shoot through their body for, for hours and hours on end, sometimes for days on end. And that's what this, this Roman jailer does to Paul and Silas. He's commanded to keep them securely into the morning. And he doesn't just do that. He actually takes them to the inner part of the prison. And he puts them in this contraption that forces this incredible pain on them. So clearly, it's not really a nice guy. It's a guy who enjoys his work just a little too much. This is what happens, though. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword 
was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his household. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The jailer comes to faith. And once again, he's not like these two others who met or experienced God in their life. Here's a man who is more like an ex-soldier. He, he's more like a blue-collar guy. He isn't interested in the debates of the intellectual crowd that they're having down by the riverside on the Sabbath morning. He's not really interested in all that supernatural stuff that's happening in that little slave girl's life. He's the kind of guy who, who just likes to do his job and to do it well. And then to come home to his wife and his kids and have a beer and watch the game. And, and he wasn't like rich like Lydia and he wasn't poor like the, the little slave girl. He's like just your basic, decent, middle-class guy. He's doing his job. But when the earthquake comes and the, and the, and the prison doors open and he thinks that the prisoners have escaped, he reaches for his sword because he's going to take his life. Because the rule in that day is if you were a Roman soldier or a Roman jailer responsible for another prisoner and that prisoner escaped, it was your life for his. And so he's about to, to end his life when the Apostle Paul cries out. He's like, hey, we're still here. And suddenly he becomes deeply, deeply interested in the faith of Paul and Silas. You see, unlike Lydia who came to faith through this engagement around the intellectual teachings, you know, of the, of the Bible, or, or this little slave girl who came to faith through the display of God's power in her, in her life. This man and his family come to faith by watching someone live out their faith in a very real way, in a very costly way, right before their very eyes. And they see how Paul and Silas live, and, and it's so different. And it's so, not, not at all what he expected, and it's so attractive to him. And so he wants that kind of thing in his life. And so he turns in that very hour and he gives his life to follow Jesus. This is how the Philippian church began. With a, a, an Asian lady who's the CEO of her own little fashion empire. With a slave girl who is profoundly transformed by the power of God in her life. And by this blue-collar, blue middle-class Philippian jailer. It's not exactly the crowd that you would have expected, and yet it's who God in his wisdom chose. Diverse, coming to faith in such different ways, but each of them powerfully transformed by the power of Jesus in their life. That's the kind of church that Paul writes the letter, this letter that we're looking at too. And isn't that us? I mean, in so many ways, we have a lot of similarities. Our church is filled with people from so many different backgrounds. I mean, we got people who have been here all their lives. In fact, their parents and grandparents were part of this church. We've got people who are just brand new. You've you just started literally in the last number of weeks or months. And we've got people who followed Jesus since they were so young, like they were born in the pews, and others who came to faith only recently. And we have some in our church who are very wealthy, and some who are middle class, and some who don't have so much money. And we come from different ethnic backgrounds and different denominational backgrounds. And, and we came to faith in all kinds of different ways. And we're multi-generational. 
I mean, if you watched our Easter service last week, it began, before the service began, with these, these children, these young people, just talking about what Easter meant and how Jesus is important in their life. And the worship time, the worship time was really led by our young adult crowd, by young people who are following Jesus passionately and leading us in beautiful worship to our risen Savior. And the guy who preached, I mean, he's kind of handsome, middle-aged guy, losing a little bit of hair trying to follow Jesus as best he can. And near the end of the service, you know, we showed this video of these these older saints, these men and women who have followed God so faithfully for so many years in our church. It's just this beautiful picture of what God is doing in our church. And and if you listened this morning at the pre-service, you heard Joan tell her story again of how God literally changed her life, how she wouldn't be the person she is if it weren't for Jesus. And she told about the power of of relationships to draw her into community here and the incredible beauty of someone who mentored her deeply in what it meant to follow Jesus and and how the vision of our church has always been, has always been that our city would know Jesus. It's such a great story of God's faithfulness. God has built such a beautiful church here out of such a wide variety of people and at the heart of it, at the heart of it all is Jesus and what he's done in our lives. This is the kind of church that Paul writes this letter to. It's a church very much like ours. And the church in Philippi, I mean, it was doing well. It it had momentum. God was at work. Now, they had their issues. There was tensions there. But as we'll see, for the most part, things were going really well. And this is us too. You know, in spite of COVID, in spite of the fact that we haven't been able to meet here on a Sunday morning in person, fact of the matter is God has been so gracious to us and there is good things happening in our church. There is momentum among us. There are people who are coming to faith in Jesus. There are people who are exploring what it means to follow Jesus. Doors are opening in the community for us in in really interesting ways for us to begin to, to serve and to meet the needs of our community in new ways. And people are being cared for as they walk through some of the deepest, darkest, hardest moments of their lives. And just like the church in Philippi, we've got our tensions. There's pressures around here. But for the most part, things are going really well. And for that, we praise God. So this letter that we're going to look at, it's written to a church just like us. But you know, while things were going well for the church at Philippi, the culture around them was shifting. And that culture was going to begin to apply more and more pressure to the people in the church in Philippi. Here's what was going on. Philippi was a unique city in that it was a Roman colony. Uh, Not every city in the ancient Roman world was considered a Roman colony. It was a Roman colony uh, because of an event that happened in the year 42 uh, BC. In 42 BC, the forces of Octavian, who would later become Caesar Augustus, and, and his partner Mark Anthony faced off against the forces, the army of a guy named Cassius and Cassius and Brutus. Those were the guys who assassinated Julius Caesar, which was a huge battle. And in this very pivotal battle for the history and the future of the Roman Empire, Octavian, later uh, Caesar Augustus, and Mark Anthony won. And as a way to honor that battle, as a way to remember what happened there, they made the city of Philippi into a Roman colony. Now, that meant that they conferred upon uh, upon the people of that city Roman citizenship, which was highly valued. Not everyone in the Roman Empire was a Roman citizen. 
And it also meant that that city had all sorts of special privileges. Among them, not having to pay all number of taxes that other cities did. So, the city of Philippi was, uh, was a very popular place for Roman soldiers who had done their service, their duty to come and to retire. It was considered like a, like a mini Rome in northern Greece, kind of like the best of both worlds. It also meant that the people in that city had a real warmth, a real affinity towards the Roman emperor. Now, all of that happened in 42 BC. When the Apostle Paul writes this letter, the culture has changed. It's now 61 AD. And by this time, the view of the emperor has begun to shift. It's begun to change. And by 61 AD, the primary titles, the primary way that the people in the empire, and particularly in Philippi, were expected to address the emperor was with the words Kyrios and Soter. Literally, Lord and Savior. And in that time, there was a move especially in that part of the empire, to deify the emperor, to consider the emperor to be a god. So that means that in the city of Philippi, every time there was a public event, every time the assembly met, every time there was a public performance, wherever sort of the public life of the city took place, there was this expectation that everyone who came would honor the emperor by declaring that he was both Lord and Savior and God of their lives. Now, as you can imagine, that would put significant pressure on a group of people who believed that Jesus Christ was Lord and Savior and the only true God in their lives. And so this was a growing problem in the, in the Philippian world because they were living in a culture where the culture had a profoundly different worldview than they had. Now in our day, there's nobody demanding that we you know, no emperor demanding that we call them Savior and Lord. But like the church in Philippi, the culture around us continues to shift and continues to change. And with it comes new pressures for us as a church. You know, for almost 2,000 years, the, the church in the Western part of the world has lived in what has been known as Christendom, which means that even though the culture wasn't fully Christian, there was a warmth or there was an openness to Christian values and the Christian faith. But over the last number of decades, in our lifetime, there has been this profound shift away from that idea to what everyone would now consider to be, in the West, a post-Christian world, a post-Christian culture. Now, what is a post-Christian culture? Well, a post-Christian culture is really a desire to have the kingdom of God without the king. Let me explain what I mean by that. Post-Christian world is not some sort of return to a pre-Christian world. It's not like somehow our culture has forgotten what it means to be Christian or Christian values. Rather, it's an attempt on behalf of our culture to attain all of the good things that Christianity speaks about without having Jesus in the picture, without having God in the picture. Cultural critic, a guy named Joseph Bottom, explains that the post-Christian world is very much like liberal Christianity. You know liberal Christianity. It has... This idea that faith and, and theology should be shaped in light of the Enlightenment, in light of the progress of modernity. So things like miracles and the supernatural and, and the scriptures, they're all viewed as kind of being a little bit suspect, not, not really so necessary. And it's not so much about changing our hearts and our lives as it is about changing the, the world around us, bringing the 
kingdom of God, all of the goodness and the, and the righteousness into the world through human hands, through the, through, through the work of our, of our own doing. And really, this is the essence of a post-Christian world. The majority of people in our culture today believe in a pleasant sort of afterlife and that there's some sort of benevolent Christian-like God out there. But they reject the doctrine of divine punishment, the doctrine of hell. I mean, in our world, that is morally repugnant that such an idea should exist. And when it comes to the whole idea of personal morality or the pursuit of virtue, they, they don't go with that. Instead, they replace this with the idea of the common good, the belief that the kingdom of God is there but, and that there's sort of this new Jerusalem, this, this new world that we're going to. But it comes not through faith in Christ and what God's going to do, but rather by pursuing this sort of perfect, inclusive civil society. And in a post-Christian world, the way of salvation comes not through putting your faith in Jesus, but rather through attaining an enlightened attitude. And in many ways, it's not so much a philosophical mindset as it is a bit of a religion. It, it, there's this sort of faith that comes behind it. It, it is this the pursuit of all the good things of the kingdom of God without the need to submit to the lordship of Jesus in a person's life. And the interesting thing about the post-Christian world is that it's very evangelistic, just as much as Christians are evangelistic. In the post-Christian world, it's not just this sort of neutral worldview. There's this desire to have everybody converted and walking in the same sort of worldview. Which means that, not unlike the the church in Philippi in Paul's day, in the public institutions of our day, in the public world of our day, in the entertainment, anywhere else that, that a Christian participates in the life of the culture around us, there's this expectation, this increasing pressure that a Christian conforms to the ideas and the beliefs of a post-Christian world. And you see that everywhere. You see that in our education system. You see it in the news that very much has an agenda. You see it in our social media, both from the political left, but also from the political right. There's this ongoing evangelism that takes place at multiple levels. So although our world is very different than the first century Philippian church, in many ways it's not that different. And so that's why we want to spend the next number of weeks and months actually walking very deeply in this letter that the Apostle Paul writes. And the question is this. What is the message that the apostle has? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, what is it that the Holy Spirit through the apostle is saying to a church like ours? To a church of people with such diverse backgrounds. To a church that is on the move. There's momentum and it's growing. But to a church that is living in a culture that is beginning to put more and more pressure for them to conform to the way that our, our churches, uh, the way that our culture is going. Where is it that we should go? What is it that the apostle Paul is calling us to? Well, the answer is found in the, in the letter that he writes in Philippians, back in chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. Paul wrote this letter from prison. Most scholars believe that he was imprisoned in Rome somewhere. And so the fact of the matter is he was going to stand before Nero, plead his case, and his chances weren't necessarily that good. And so partway through chapter 1, the apostle Paul begins to to talk about the consequences. He says, look, if I die, that's my gain. I go to be with Christ. But if I live, that means I can carry on the mission that God has given me. And that's 
where he comes, this, what he says in verse 24, he says this. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Right there. You see that? That's Paul's desire for the Philippian church. That's his desire for our church. That we might, that we might progress and find joy in our faith. In other words, Paul's call to the Philippian church, his call to us, where we're at in this place, in our lives, in, the, in this culture that we're at, is that we would go deeper, that we would grow, that we would mature, that we would pursue this sort of this deep discipleship. His call is that we, we don't get bored with following Jesus, that, that we don't get distracted, that we don't end up being evangelized by the world around us that wants so desperately to, to form us into its mold, but rather to know Jesus more. In fact, later in chapter 3, he goes on. He, he describes all of his accomplishments, all these things that he's done, and it's, it's a pretty impressive list. But then in verse 7, he says this. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the goal. That's the call that Paul has for the Philippian church, and it's the call that he has for our church. You know, in a world where Nero was Lord, where, where everyone was expected to call Nero their Lord and Savior, his call to that church is to say, no, no, no. Instead, you must know Jesus alone as your Lord, as your Savior. And in our world where no one wants anyone to be the Lord of their life, in our world where everyone makes themselves as their own Lord, in that world, the call for us is also to know Jesus as our Lord, to follow him in every part of our life. You see, here's, here's the very heart of Paul that he has for us. Discipleship for us is to know Jesus. Discipleship for us is to submit our lives to him, to become more like him, to live like him. Discipleship, to know Jesus, is the lifelong pursuit for we who are followers of Jesus. It never stops. Look, if we are going to be a city on a hill in, in this place that God has put us, if we're going to be saints the way that he calls the Philippian church, saint, by the way, simply means someone who's set apart to follow God, to live differently in light of who God has called them to be. If we're to be the saints that he redresses here, if we are to live in such a way that the culture around us looks at us and declares the glory of God, when they see the way that we live, then we need to know Jesus more. We need to go deeper. The Apostle Paul, after he explains all the things that he's done and how he leaves it all behind to know Jesus, he says this in, in chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. This is how mature followers of Jesus think. This is what they do. They press on to know Jesus more. Now, how do we do that? Well, as we're going to see, as we walk through this letter, it's God who, who's going to work in our hearts and transform our lives but there's also an expectation all throughout the book of Philippians that we also participate in what God is doing in our lives. 
And the question is, is how does that happen? How, how do we participate? How do we mature? How do we grow into knowing Jesus more? And the answer might surprise you. The answer that Paul gives us to this question is, the, is that we need to imitate. We need to imitate. The way that we're going to grow and learn is through imitation. In fact, listen to what he says right after this. In verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The way that Paul is going to challenge us to grow is through imitation. Through imitating him and imitating those who are walking the way that Paul did. I mean, if you listen to Joan's story before the service began, one of the primary ways that she grew in her faith was that she was mentored by Grace Robinson. She imitated what God was doing in Grace Robinson's life. Now, listen, in our hyper-individualized world, the idea of imitation is not really a cool thing. I mean, in our world, everyone is all about, like, forging your own path and being your own person and, and, and marching to the beat of your own drum. And it sounds so good, but it just isn't the case. I mean, everyone imitates everyone else. You just, I mean, look at your social media feed. This is a brilliant opportunity to look at how everybody wants us to see their life. And when you scroll through it, it's like, oh, <clears throat> different person, same thing. Different person, same thing. There's this sense that everybody imitates somebody else. The question is simply, who is it that you're going to imitate? Now, imitation doesn't mean that everyone does exactly the same thing as someone else. Rather, here's what the dictionary definition of imitate is. To imitate means to take or to follow someone as a model. Social scientists who study imitation in humans, and it's pretty much a uniquely human attribute, will tell you that imitation is vital to human growth. In fact, to imitate is one of the best ways to learn. It's faster than trying to learn on your own, and it's safer than trial and error. You know, when I was, uh, when I was 13 or 14 years old, I started to go to work in the summers with my dad. Now, my dad was a, a carpenter, a framer. He built the wood structure of houses, of new houses. And so I joined him. He bought me a, a hammer and he bought me a tool pouch and I began to work with him. And, and you know, when, it, when we started, we, it was time to nail things together. And so I got out a nail, a two-inch nail, and I grabbed that hammer as close to the head as I could and I, I began to, to nail. Tap, 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 tap. Took me about two minutes to get that nail in. Took out another nail, began to do it again. And I looked over and I saw my dad. And my dad took a nail and went, tap, bang, tap, bang, tap, bang. And I looked over and I said, oh, that's how this is supposed to be done. Tap, 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 bang. And I bent the nail and get it, tap, 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 bang. But you know, it didn't take long. And I could do that, tap, bang, tap, bang. That's how you, that's how you nail stuff. But you know, my dad didn't take me into a classroom and say, Jonathan, this is a nail and this is a hammer and, and this is how leverage works and, and, and this is the, 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 the physics of all of that. No, he took me to the job site and he began to do it and I watched and I learned. Imitation is a brilliant and very effective way to learn and grow. In fact, it's so central to how we learn and grow that one team of social scientists literally described imitation as a pillar of human culture. And for we who are followers of Jesus, this is a deeply biblical way to, to grow. The New Testament is filled with admonitions for us to learn through imitation. Here's, here's just a number of them. 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, 
you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And again, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, the Apostle Paul writes this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You know, the whole letter of the Philippians, this church that Paul has such deep affections for, it's an invitation to grow, to mature, to know Jesus more and more deeply through imitating those who are doing that very thing. And as we see through, as we walk through it, the Apostle Paul offers his life and his experiences as examples, as pictures of what it looks to be a mature follower of Jesus. And he'll offer up other examples of Timothy and a guy named Epaphroditus and how their life was worthy of imitating. And at the very center of this letter, in chapter 2, there's this brilliant, this incredible sort of hymn of worship where he points to Jesus himself as the ultimate, obviously the ultimate one to whom we are to imitate. And so this whole letter that we're going to look at is an invitation to imitate and to learn and to mature as followers of Jesus. In fact, listen to how he ends uh, the main portion of his letter. After all of the sort of the, the main part before his closing comments, he says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Imitate me. What you see I do, you, what you learn from me, you go out and you do the same thing. And he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Listen, as we walk through this letter from the, from the apostle to the church in Philippi, we're going to learn all kinds of things, all kinds of information, amazing, beautiful things. But the information in itself is not enough. The goal is transformation. And the way that we want to grow, the way that we want to learn is not just get accumulated information, but through imitation. It's through, it's through watching how the Apostle Paul lives. And it's through truly knowing Jesus and, and, and imitating him that we're going to learn what it means to be a mature and complete follower of Jesus. And we're going to then allow the Holy Spirit to come and to change and transform our life. And when we do that, the God of peace will be with us and he will transform and change our lives. So I want to invite you to join me as together we walk through this letter to the church in Philippi over these next number of weeks and months. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that it is rich and real and it was just as relevant in that day or it's just as relevant in our day as it was in that day. And so God, we invite you as we begin this journey through the book of Philippians, Father, to speak to us. God, to spur us on. Father, may we continue to grow. May we not be stalled where we are. May we not be distracted by the world around us. May we not give in to the pressures of the culture that wants us to be something different. But may we look rather to Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we know Jesus more and more. And so, God, we give ourselves to you. We invite you to continue to change and transform us as we peer deeply and carefully into your word. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.